Morning, everyone. As we prepare to get into our text this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 17, 8 to 13. But as we prepare, you can go ahead with that, to do that. Last week, we experienced another move of the Holy Spirit that sometimes seems unique in this church, but it should be a move that we experience every week. It should be the normal work. And the altars were filled with folks who came forward for God to minister in various needs, just a variety of needs. And what we want to do as a church that not only receives from God but gives back to God the honor that is due Him when He does a work. How many of you know that when you get a present and you don't say thank you for it, it's very ungrateful? I mean, aren't we parents and grandparents and friends and relatives kind of put off a little bit? You spent a lot of time doing this, you gave a present, and nothing, nothing. You know, God's the same way. He wants a thank you. Not only thank you for doing this in me, but a thankful that thank you that says to the church, look what God has done. So all of us together can say thank you. Thank you. And so there were several who were ministered to Sunday. Several. So let us encourage you to do this. To honor the Lord. You remember the one leper who came back to Jesus. He says, what happened to all the others? I healed them all. We need to be saying thank you to God through testimonies. You write it out. Don't have to be extensive. Just paragraph. And it can be anonymous or not. We prefer your name. We want to be able to identify what God is doing in each of us. And we want to share these. No, we don't have to share. And Bill Smith said this. So we would say, you know, one of the men in the congregation or the ladies in the congregation or someone. But we want to share with you what God is doing. How many of you want to hear what God is doing? Well, we want to share it. So if you don't give it to us, we don't have anything to share. So we want to be able to do that. So would you consider that this week? <clears throat> And covenant group leaders, I sent out an email about a week or so ago asking you to poll your covenant group members. Would you do that? Let's become a church increasingly testifying to the good and great work of God. You remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Keith dealt with the passage before the one that we're talking about in Exodus chapter 17. He talked about verses 1 to 7. And you remember what was happening then, the people of Israel out in the wilderness. And this continues that great supernatural work of God because everything that God does, everything that God does is supernatural. The difference is sometimes we don't recognize 99.9% .9 of it. So we need to be better in that. Everything that God is doing is supernatural. It's not according to what the natural, it's according to his great mercy and grace. Everything. And so the people have come to this place called Rephidim. There's no water. What are we going to do? We're thirsty. We're going to die. Why didn't you let us go back there? You know, the whole realm of grumbling that we all experience when we're not getting our way and when things are not going well. And so the Lord commands Moses to strike the rock. Moses strikes the rock and a stream of water comes flowing out. Now this morning we're going to pick up the story after that in Exodus chapter 17 verses 8 to 13, which really records what happened after Moses strikes the rock and the water comes forth. Let's see what happens. 
Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the mountain with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Father, as you always do, we ask you to instruct our hearts this morning. Father, we just don't want to hear about another story. Father, we want to hear in this story your word, your communication. So, Father, by your spirit, as only you can and only you will do, we ask you to minister to us so many needs here in this one room. Minister to us according to your grace, according to your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Strike the rock, water comes out, then Amalek begins to attack Israel. All of a sudden, conflict begins. Conflict. Well, what's the cause of the conflict? What is happening here? Well, the cause of the conflict is very simple. You see, this is a desert, kind of a sparse area. This isn't an area like New Orleans, Louisiana, where we have lakes and rivers all around us, and you can go a mile in any direction, maybe, and wind up in water. It's not that kind of an area. It's a, an area that is deprived of water, water being very, very precious, very needful for life. Israel begins to experience a stream of water coming forth out of this rock. A little river, flowing water. Amalek, the people of the region, hear about this. And so what do they do? Hey, we need water, and we're going to attack Israel in order to get the water. So what happens? Amalek wants to gain possession of the water. So they attack Israel, and there's a fierce fight over what? Over water. As a result of the water coming forth, the enemy comes in and begins to attack the people of God. Now, what does that have to do with us? What, 3,500 or so years ago, that happened. So what? So what? Well, it has everything to do with us when we remember the word and it's been quoted here several times in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. Extremely important. In fact, from verses 1 to 6 and 7, that whole section of scripture. And the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, now these things, what things? Well, not the things just confined to Exodus, but in general, the things that are contained within the Old Testament, but this morning we're just talking about these verses 8 to 13. These things were written down. They were recorded because we just like history. No, what? They were recorded for our instruction so that we may not desire evil as they did. They were recorded so we would know something about God, something about our need, something about what God is doing in us and how he does it, and something about the attacks that are going to occur, and something about how to survive these attacks of the enemy. That word in Exodus 13, sorry, 17, is up-to-date word for each one of us. Because how many of us could say, there are no 
conflicts or there is no war raging in me. There is no temptation. I'm not having any difficulties. I'm not pulled helter-skelter. I'm not being uh, swayed this way or that. Anyone in here, you're not going through any conflicts at all in any area whatsoever. Is anyone like that? This is about all of us, and this is for all of us. Remember two weeks ago when Pastor Keith talked about the passage of the first seven verses, Moses striking the rock for the water. He spoke about these events as types and shadows. They were foreshadowing. They were real historical events, but not events to be just contained within that period of history. But God was using them to foreshadow or to speak about that which was to come. He was looking forward to a fulfillment years down the road. And so these events are shadowing how God saves his people. He talked about that. By striking the rock, which, remember, was a symbol of Christ. In fact, in that same chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verse 4, that rock was Christ. So the rock represented the striking, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And what was the result? As a result of the rock being struck, what happened? Water flowed out. And then he went into chapter 7, remember, of John, and talked about Jesus saying, Come unto me, all ye who are thirsty. Out of your, what, bellies, remember, out of your heart, from you will come streams of living water. But what was he talking about? He wasn't talking about that we would be water fountains. But he was using this in reference to the flowing, ever-life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. Water Biblically, is very often a symbol of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So you see, Exodus is just more than past history. It is a spiritual history for us today. It is foreshadowing the gospel. That's what we must see here. So what is this conflict? You see, this conflict symbolizes what happens in us after we are saved. The Israelites are not attacked until the water comes forth from the stricken rock. And once the rock is smitten and the water comes forth, all of a sudden Amalek comes alive, if you would, and attacks God's people. Once we were in the kingdom of Satan, then we were saved. And Colossians says that we have been, what, delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Once we were in the kingdom of darkness, the conflicts in us were different. We had no conflict in us as to sin or not to sin before we were saved. You may have thought you had that conflict, but you didn't. You may have had conflict with, can I get caught, and what's the best for me, and will I be in trouble? But none of that conflict had anything to do with righteousness. Before we were saved, simply put, there was no conflict within me and within you as to whether I will do righteous or unrighteous. We could not do anything righteous. Everything we did in God's view, no matter what man or I thought of it, everything was unrighteous. So there was no spiritual conflict in us before we were saved. But after we're saved, everything changed. Everything changed. I mean, how many of us experience this strange change? I grew up using the king's language Bad, bad language. I could outcurse anybody in the room. Be very creative in calling you things. I can give you an example, but I don't think I should. <laughs> Cursing was so what? Stealing. These things didn't bother us. The only thing we were afraid of is we would get caught, get kicked out of school or whatever. I remember yelling out the window one time in military school a couple of alphabetical words. 
And the principal of the school walked into the room while I'm hanging out the window yelling, you, mm. And he says, what do these two letters, and he used the letters. I'm not going to even use the letters with it. And I said, and I gave him a funny answer. There was no struggle in me about whether I should do this in relation to God. But once I was saved, everything changed. I had the new life of God's holy, holy, Holy Spirit in me. And everything changed. You see, a warfare begins. Before we were Satan's and now we're God's. And Satan wants his property back, so he thinks it's his. And so as a result, a great warfare has begun inside of us between what? Between the will of our fallen flesh and the will of God. See if this sounds familiar to you about your own self. Jesus says these words in Mark 7. For from within, out of men's hearts, even women's hearts, come evil thoughts. Does that identify with anybody, evil thoughts? Well, wait, before I was saved, I had these thoughts, but they weren't evil. I just had these thoughts that I enjoyed and went along with them. Are you with me on this? They weren't evil. So what? I'm a guy. I'm a guy. I'm supposed to have thoughts like that. So what? Every guy has them. Every girl feels this way. So what? All of a sudden, in me now, these same things that, so what? Or now what? Evil. There's a different principle working in me. I have holy, holy, holy God living in me. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lawlessness, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from within and make a man unclean. Look at what's going on inside of me. What in the world is all this conflict about? I was more, if you would, at rest in a certain way before I was saved than after I got saved. Because there wasn't this kind of a struggle in me before. Am I the only one feeling like this? I didn't have a problem in these areas. I grew up in an abused house. We went to military school. Military school in the 50s wasn't what it is today. All of a sudden, things changed. You see, all, well, we have a new nature. If we're saved, we have a new nature. But how many of us know this? The new nature still lives in an old house. <laughs> how many of you? Your new nature lives in the old fallen house of sin. And it is within the context of that house of sin, our flesh, that the enemy takes copious opportunity to attack us, to tempt us, to woo us to deceive us, to lie to us, to do whatever he can to undermine the foundations of this house so the glory of God may not be able to be seen in this house the way the Lord wants it to be seen. So when you look at my house, rather than seeing a great and beautiful, wonderful structure that is incredible, only God could do this. You're seeing a broken down, miserable shack that needs painting and is leaking and is leaning. That's what the enemy wants to do to us. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about this conflict. Galatians 5, 17 and 18. For the desires of the flesh. Anybody have any fleshly desires in here today? Flesh desires. And you know, when you say that, some people think, oh, that's all sexual. No. Oh, no. It's the desire for anything at all that satisfies my self person rather than the person of God in me. Anything at all. Anything at all. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. One of the best ways and most clear, the, one of the clearest ways to determine whether you are still a believer or whether you are a believer at all. If you have any questions, one of the best tests is this. When you sin, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? When you sin, do you want to sin or do you want to please God? What is the basic desire of your heart? Given everything else put aside, my basic desire is what? To please God or to not care anything about him and get my own way? An unrighteous, dead in sin, unsaved person does not want to please the God of glory. Oh, he wants to please a God, the God of his own making, but not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the definitive tests to determine if you're in Christ. Your heart has been changed before you didn't care, and now you care very much. So that's the conflict without. I'm not going to go into great detail about all that. I think we know what we're talking about here. The conflicts are within is this conflict that occurs in me when I get saved. One of the difficulties and one of the entrapments of Satan is this. I receive Christ. I come to an altar to pray. I pray with a friend. I'm at home listening to a program. Whatever you, it is, but I have the move of the Holy Spirit. I want to be forgiven. I realize that if I'm not forgiven, I'm going to go to hell. That is going to happen. And all of a sudden, there wells up in me a great desire. I want to be forgiven. I want to be with God. I want my life to be changed. All of a sudden, there is a desire for this God that wasn't there before. And so I say yes to him. That's called receiving Christ. I say yes. If you're this morning and this is what's happening to you now and today for the first time, that's the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to come into my kingdom. I'm bringing you in. And yours is to say, yes, I want to be forgiven. No, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I do want to inherit eternal life. But when that happens, we all of a sudden hit a wall. We are ready to live righteously. And all of a sudden, we see something happening in me. We see sin. We see a conflict. For the first time, and all of a sudden, we realize, what's wrong? What's wrong? What did Israel do wrong for the Amalekites to attack them? What did they do wrong? Did they do anything wrong? No. They received the water, and they got attacked. So when you're attacked by Satan in your flesh, your desires, and when these things are warring against you, don't think something is wrong. In fact, thinks everything is what? Right. Because if you're not being attacked this way, I don't know whether you can say faithfully that you're a believer in Christ. For all those who are in Christ will suffer persecution from Satan, from the world, from their flesh. So nothing's wrong. And I remember as a new believer, I, I struggled with this for years. For years, Mike, I struggled. What's going on? What can I do? What, how can I get rid of this, away from the? I didn't want to do this anymore. And yet I couldn't get away from me. And then I began to hear the Word of God explained in a way that I had not understood it before. You see, because I thought that once I was saved, I had to generate good works and holy works and pure works in order to be maintained in Christ. It simply doesn't work. There's nothing wrong 
This is the inevitable conflict that everyone who is born into the kingdom of God will experience. It's going to happen. Aren't you glad you came this morning? (laughs) So first, be disabused of the thought that there's something wrong with you if you are experiencing the struggle of temptation and sin and giving in and fighting and resisting and, you know, doing all of that kind of stuff. I don't say there's something wrong with your faith or weak. I understand some of that may, but the conflict itself is the normal supernatural activity of the conflict between Satan's kingdom and the kingdom of God's dear son. So that's the conflict within. What about, what about the solution within? There's a conflict, but there's also a solution. You see, as there is a conflict within Friends, in Christ, there is a solution within. We cannot stop the conflict, but we don't have to be overcome by the conflict. Now, seriously, get this. We cannot stop the conflict. So stop trying to stop the conflict. But every time there is conflict, temptation, difficulty, attack, Don't run away from it. Do what the Bible tells you to do to overcome, deal with it, and overcome it. Don't bemoan the fact that you're under temptation and having some difficulty your way. Don't do that, but do what the Bible tells you to do so that the glory of God's victory in Christ may be able to be manifested clearly and powerfully in us. Amen? So let us stop bemoaning the fact, I'm tempted, I'm tempted, I'm tired of being tempted. Stop it. And let us learn how to deal with that which is normal to our Christian life. I remember I was going down the street one day bemoaning the fact, oh God, I gave in again. Oh God. I sinned again. Oh, God. That's how I felt, Steve. Johnny, that's how I felt. I'm not being silly. That's how I felt. And it was almost like a voice out of heaven said, shut up. (laughs) Chris, it said, don't say that. And I said, what do you mean? Am I not supposed to confess sin? Yes, you're supposed to confess sin, but that ain't confessing sin. The Lord just, you know, stop saying that, stop bemoaning the fact, and get up and deal with the sin. It's time to stop bemoaning the problem and deal with the problem. Amen? Father, I sin. I'm sorry I sin. I'm ashamed I sin. But that sin will not have dominion over me. I'm going to deal with it. Rather than, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That is Satan's ploy to keep you underneath the soil. When the weed comes up, you don't go, oh, weeds, weeds, there's just so many weeds here. What am I going to do? Get in the mud and pull up the weeds. Amen? Pull them up. Come on. Pull them up. There's some bemoaning in there. Don't do bemoan anymore. Man, I went home a changed man. I went home a changed man. Because now when I saw the weeds, I'm ready for you. In Christ, I'm ready for the weeds. Oh, there are going to be plenty of weeds in my garden. Don't you think there are none there? You just asked my wife. There are a few. (laughs) But I'm ready for them now. What to do? I want us to see the solution from two different passages. Genesis 3.15. Now, you know there's no way I'm ever going to speak a word without saying something about Genesis. And I think the day I do, you know that I'm sleeping half up here. Genesis 3.15. want to see the solution from two passages. One in Genesis, one in Revelation. One in the beginning of the book, one at the end of the book. Because both of them speak about the solution. Both of these 
passages have everything to do with Exodus 17. Genesis 3.15, you remember, is part of the curse. Adam and Eve have sinned. Adam sinned. Eve was deceived. Sin came into the world. Mankind fell. And God proceeds to give a curse. Cursed is the ground, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And in 3.15, the Lord tells us that he promises that there will be a warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. This is the origin of the conflict recorded in Exodus 17. There's going to be a warfare, enmity between the seed. Now, the seed there is a person, but it's also people. The seed of the woman is Christ himself. There's going to be a warfare between this man, Jesus Christ, and this enemy, Satan. There's going to be a conflict, a warfare. But we are in Christ, and so that warfare involves us. So the origins and the reasons for what you see in Exodus 17, the reasons for what you see in your life, the reason for what I see in my life is in Genesis 3.15. God promises a warfare. Now, we're not going to talk about all the ramifications of that and why that and how God and couldn't he done enough. It's just there it is. So why is what's happening happening? Look at Genesis 3.15 and you'll see. That's what's going on. That explains three, uh, Exodus 17. That's the problem. But then there is another verse. It's in Revelation 12, 11. Now, you remember Revelation 12? It's a picture of the warfare of Satan against the church. And Satan's attacking the woman and her seed and her children. And, you know, all of that is happening. Great, great warfare going on. And in verse 11, we are told how the people of God overcome the attacks of the enemy. There are conflicts within us. There are attacks within us. There's difficulty. There are problems within us. How do we deal with it? What do we do? Well, let's do what the Bible tells us to do. Now, there are a whole lot of other verses that we could do with this, but we're going to leave out about two million of those verses and just talk about this one. So if I didn't quote your favorite verse this morning, you just hang in there. I'm glad you know that. John 12, 11. John describes how the church triumphs over Satan. They overcame him. May I repeat that word? They what? They overcame him. What? They overcame him. Not by moaning and bemoaning and calling on God and whining and trying to do this and whatever. That's not the way. They overcame him two ways. What? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. These two work in concert. They are two sides of the same coin. One is not more important than the other. Without one, you don't have the other. You cannot say one or the other. You must have both or have none. How do they overcome him? How does the church, how do I overcome and deal with and overcome, face, deal with, overcome the issues of conflict, of flesh in me against the spirit and spirit against the flesh? How do I deal with this warfare in a victorious way? The blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. So let's talk about the blood of the lamb for a moment. Again, I'm going to go through this in a kind of a skeletal way. This is not a, an exposition of what this means in its entirety. The blood of the lamb. Now, what does the word lamb bring to your mind? How many of you remember the verse John 1.29? And John repeats it a few verses later. John the Baptist is out there baptizing on the, at the Jordan, and his cousin, whom he hasn't seen for a little while, is walking toward him. He sees this man walking toward him. There's a crowd. There's a big crowd. But in this crowd, he sees this man. And what does he say? There's the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. There he is right there. You see, the blood of the lamb has to do with the victorious, sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross for our sin and in his resurrection for our eternal life. The blood of the lamb has to do with the cross. This means that in every conflict with sin and Satan, this means that in every conflict with sin and Satan, this means that in every conflict with sin and Satan, we are not resisting in order to get a victory and win something, but we are resisting to show that the victory over sin and Satan has been won at the cross. We are confronting sin and Satan, Satan and are resisting and overcoming from the perspective of a victory that has already been won. So I'm not trying to get the victory in anything. If I am in Christ, I have the victory, amen? Now what we're doing is manifesting the good and the glory and the activity and the effect of that victory that has already been won at the cross. You see, because Jesus on that day broke forever all the power of the enemy over us. So it's the cross. Hmm. The word of the testimony. The word of the testimony. This phrase has to do with the living testimony of Christ in us and through us to the world. The word of the testimony. It's their faith, reliance, and living portrayal of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus in John 1.8 says to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem because you're going to get endued with power from on high. Remember? And what is the reason for this power? You shall be my witnesses. Why do we have the Holy Spirit in us? So you see, we can witness, so we can demonstrate, so the glory of God's Son may be able to be fully and clearly and comprehensively and consistently displayed in us. That's why we're saved. So the word of my testimony is the living reality of Christ in me through my words, thoughts, and deeds, public, private, any way, anywhere, under any circumstance, who I am as a man in Christ, who you are as people in Christ. All that we are is the word of our testimony, but especially that spoken word of testimony. Especially because, you see, they may not know why we're so different. And they probably won't know unless the Holy Spirit does an unusual work in a heart of revelation like he did in John. But he depends upon us not only living a testimony, but what? <laughs> Speaking a testimony. That's why it's important for you to give testimony here when God is doing the work. The word of the testimony is a verbal and relational and mental, etc., all of which overcome Satan's attacks when we, according to the word of God. Listen to what Hebrews 4, 12, 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you see, it's the sword of God. The testimony, the word of that testimony is the sword of God working in our hearts to deal with the issues of our life, to be manifested to the world. So what do we see here? What do we see in Exodus? Well, we see the blood of the lamb. We see the blood of the lamb. How do we see that? You see, when we look at Exodus chapter 17, look at verse 9. And what does Moses say? Choose some men and go fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So what is Moses going to do? Moses is on the top of the mountain or the top of the hill. 
and he's there holding up his two hands, and in his two hands is that great staff that God has anointed with his power and for his authority. That's the staff of God. Do you notice what it says, the staff of God? Remember prepositional phrases? This is an adjective phrase. It modifies or describes, illuminates the word staff. The staff of God. This staff was of God. It's from God, it's for God, and it's about God. This staff is a visible representation of something of God. Something of God is manifested in this staff. You see, Moses is not just holding up a stick. That's not what's happening here. Moses is holding up a part of a tree. I mean, you do know a staff is part of a tree. It's a limb of a tree. He's holding up an emblem of a tree. What does that have to do with the blood of the lamb? Listen to what 1 Peter 2.24 says. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so Moses lifting up the staff is emblematic, is foreshadowing the work of God in dealing with our sin and in overcoming Satan at the cross. This is not just an old man holding up a stick in the air and with two people helping him out. It's him testifying that everything that he is praying about and everything that of his concern and the needs of the people are within the context or under the cover, under the work, in the good of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And you see, that's where we begin. He looks to God. He's on a hill. He's holding his hands up in surrender to self and in dependence upon God. He is going to God and bringing to God the issues and the needs and the conflict. And he's doing it within the finished work of Christ, not being afraid, but being assured that God will hear and answer his prayer. You see, this tree, this staff that he is holding up is emblematic of the cross where Jesus won the victory over Satan. You see, Satan's been defeated as to his authority in our lives. Satan has been defeated as to his authority. Not as to his activity, but as to his what? Authority. In other words, uh, Christians, friends, Satan cannot make me or you sin. I have to remind him of that regularly in my life. You cannot make me sin. I will not do that. I will not think that. I will not go that way. I will not say that. I don't say anymore, oh, I wish I didn't have these thoughts anymore. When they come, when the desires come, I have to say no to them. Why? Because there is a man who went to the cross to break the power of Satan over my and your life. The only reason we sin is that we give in to Satan against the work that God has already won in Jesus Christ. And if I might say so, it's an insult to God. It's an insult to God. See, we don't become animated enough about the sin in our life. One sin, I've said this before, one time by one man destroyed the world. Colossians 2, 13, and you who were dead in your sins and trespasses and circumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all trespasses. And by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal requirements, that means the work of the the law to try to be saved, he set aside nailing it to the cross. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. Our God has won the day against Satan. And Moses knows this. Some way he knows this. And he prays and he calls upon God within the context of the finished work of Christ. You don't see Moses cowering. You don't see Moses nervous. You don't see Moses, um, you know, bemoaning or anything. He says, get the man, go down there, fight. I'm going on the hill. I'm raising the staff and watch what God would do with these people. 
We're defeated too often because we don't have the spiritual background and backbone to fight and defeat Satan. Amen. Them strong words. We have a strong God. And we need to live strongly for him. You see, Moses lifted up the staff of God. He was pleading the victory of Jesus. He was calling upon the Lord to apply the good of the victory of Christ against the Amalekites. And when did he do it? He was doing this, and he was declaring God's victory over the enemy even before he saw it and even while it looked like Satan was prevailing. He wasn't looking for proof in the activity. He was looking for the proof in the staff. The staff was the proof that God wins the victory. Amen? Too many of us are looking at what's happening. How you, you, you had the victory. No, not yet, but I'm going to. No. The cross and the resurrection is where you look for the assurance of the victory. 1 John, listen to this assurance. Moses has the assurance here. He knows what's going to happen. We're going up there. You'll be down here fighting. I'm going up there, and we're going to stomp these people. He has a bold assurance. Listen to this in 1 John 5, 14, 15. This is a confidence. Where is our confidence, church? It's not in the activities of how we are living. It's in the finished, victorious work of Christ on the cross. It's in the blood of the Lamb. We have an approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, whatever we ask, whatever we ask according to his will, we know that we have what we ask of him. Moses was never too busy to pray. You know, we as a staff meet with people regularly, don't we, who have terrible conflicts and things happening where the enemy is destroying families, lives, futures, everything. And one of the primary reasons is we as people of God and personally whoever it is, we're first not praying sufficiently. And secondly, we're not praying biblically. We will watch the GOP debate before we'll pray. We'll do whatever in our land. We'll get prayer in there some kind of way. We'll squeeze it in. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And I don't even remember the rest of it. But we'll do a quick, you know, Lord's Prayer or something. Could it be that one of the monumental reasons for what's happening in your life as to defeat and destruction and disaster is because of a lack of prayer. Could it be? Yes. How do I know that? Well, listen. As Moses prayed, Joshua and the men of Israel prevailed. But as Moses' prayer waned, the Amalekites prevailed. Or the Amalekites prevailing in my life, in your life. There's a message here. And so quickly, let's look at Joshua's weapon. And Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Verse 13. With what? The sword. The sword. May I, may I, may I give you this verse? Ephesians 6, 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Again, Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharp, and then a two-edged what? Sword. You see, Joshua knew the word of God. He knows the Lord. He knows the will of God. He knows God's word. How can we be protected from deception if we don't know the will of God? How can we walk in wisdom if we don't know the will of God, the word of God? How do we know which way to go and how to go and when to go if we don't know the word of God, the will of God through the word of God? We're not spending sufficient time, quality and quantity time with God to know him well enough to be able to fight. Joshua isn't out there with a pen knife. Some of you remember what pen knives are? Those little things you have and you, you know, just to kind of clean the nails or whatever, kind of little pen knife. He's out there with a sword. 
He's defeating the enemy on the battleground with the sword. The sword of God's will. The sword of the knowledge of God's word. Church, we have to be better in our time, understanding, meditation, acting upon obedience to God's word. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but just think, this week that's just passed, how much time did you and I spend with God in his word? If you know that there is a band of robbers or thieves or murderers in your neighborhood, are you going to spend any time at all protecting your home? Yes, you will. This is given for our instruction. You see, when these two weapons, our confidence in the finished work of Christ and our knowledge of the Word of God, with these two weapons, we can and will every time, if exercised correctly, biblically, we will meet and defeat all the attacks of the enemy. One more point. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew heavy. So what happened? Aaron and her prop him up. You see, Moses is not alone in his praying. We are not alone in our praying. Listen to what Romans 8 tells us. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray for. I don't know what to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with the will of God. You see, this battle is won. Moses is not alone. I am not alone. We are not alone. We are God's people. There's prayer in the hilltop and fighting in the valley. And the combination is winning the victory. What was the result? The victory won. What was it? Look at verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people. The question is not, are you being tempted? The question is not, is there conflict? Because you are being tempted and there is conflict. So let's stop asking that. Those are no, no, those are, who cares? Those are not important questions. Here's the important question. Am I, are we, are you overwhelmingly overcoming the Amalekites? Isn't that the only question? Isn't that the only question? The question is not how many times you've been tempted. In the, the question, am I an overcomer? Am I meeting and defeating the enemy when he comes against me? Am I going to be like Joshua on the battleground? Yeah, there's some back and forth, but we're getting adjusted here. We're learning, and we're growing and maturing in Christ. Moses starts off one way, and the Holy Spirit comes in there and begins to build Moses up. And Moses, through the consistent life of prayer, we through consistent life of prayer and going to God and knowing his word, all of a sudden we are learning, wait a minute, I can live a life that even though it's under attack by the enemy, I can live a victorious life in Christ. I don't have to be defeated by the conflicts of sin in my life. I don't have to be. Listen to what Revelation 19 tells us about the victory. The blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. And I saw heaven standing open, and therefore, and there before me was a white horse and whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are the many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron hand. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, friends, conflict. This is the reason we can win. The victory of the cross has already been won. 
we have to pray according to that victory within the context of God's will for us, knowing his word, and fight the enemy and resist him. And we have a promise. He will flee from us. He will flee from us. One of the ways I thought to end this sermon today is there are conflicts in us, but they're conflicts of health, of relational difficulties, of finances. There are many conflicts. We prayed last week, and the Holy Spirit was here to minister as He is every time we gather. So this may not have seemed like a sermon that engenders prayer for the needs, but every time we open the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a context for praying for our needs. So you may be here this morning, and there are needs in your body, needs in your family, needs at your work, whatever. We don't restrict God. God doesn't want us to. So we're just going to take a few moments. And if you have any needs, anything at all that we need to pray for you, there will be people who will come down and pray for you. Trust God. He's here to show the victory that has been won, and he loves defeating the work of the enemy. He loves showing that Satan is only a toothless, loudmouthed lion. We are the ones who have the armor of God on. We are the ones who are dressed for battle to win. So if this morning you have a desire for any of us, for us to pray for any of your needs, would you begin coming down here? And in fact, I know a couple of y'all have already talked to us about this before the service. Now would be the time if you would come on down. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. There, there are folks here who have needs. There are sick people here. There are people who have relational difficulties. We're under attack. This is the normal life of the Christian. But let's pray. Let's pray the, the blood of the Lamb, hold up the staff of God, and let's take the sword of the Spirit. And let's do some, as they say, fighting down here. Let's do some fighting down here. For those of you who are felt like being led by the Spirit, y'all come down here and pray for these. This is the body of Christ. Moses was not alone. He was joined by others. Let's be the others who will hold up the hands of those who were here as Moses' hands were held up. And let's pray and let's watch God perform great victorious miracles among us. Everybody down here should have somebody to be praying for. Y'all look around. Come on, church. Y'all look around. Don't be shy. You're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you just have to say, Lord, meet the need. Pray, I pray that the finances be meet or the dealt with of healing. God doesn't make you anybody special. Just come on down and pray and watch God work through your hands and your prayer just like he did Moses. Come on down. Some of you have never prayed for anybody else. Get past the shyness and come on down. There are folks down here who need somebody to be praying with them. There are several people down here. Come on, y'all in the come. Come on. Let's be like Moses did. Let's go fight against the Amalekites in these people's lives. And let's leave today saying, God used me in a victorious way. I didn't know he could ever do it, but he's done it. What's the criteria? I'm in Christ. I'm a believer. I have the Holy Spirit. Come on down. There are folks here. Ladies, there are two or three ladies down here. There's some ladies right here who need a, a touch of a godly woman. A prayer of a godly woman. Come on down. <clears throat> Men, there's a man here who needs prayer. A man. Is there a godly man in the congregation who will, you'll come down and trust God and pray for this man here? Anybody at all? A godly man. And if you're in Christ, you're a godly man. Right here. Moses needed help. He was joined by others from the congregation. There's some ladies over here who need some women of God to come down and pray. If God has done anything in your life, even one time, and he saved you, come on down, ladies. There are several of y'all who are needed over here. 
come down. Let's be the body of Christ ministering the work of God among ourselves and watch Satan flee from us. shown you you have a need you need to be praying about this raise your hand and someone will come to you did, did I see a hand raised back there is that right someone go to I think that's Ray back there I don't have my glasses on hand back here way in the back I think Kelly's coming over huh? anyone else maybe someone in the congregation you didn't raise your hand it's okay it's okay Raise your hand if you have a need. You want someone right near you to pray for you. Anyone at all? Anyone at all?
there since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die and shall be till I die and shall be till I die redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I As we leave here today, let's remember we're going back out on enemy territory. But we can go back there and we should go back there with the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And there's no way, not under heaven, by which every one of us can be able to come back next week and say, this week, by God's grace and according to His will and my cooperation, I have defeated the Amalekites and put them to rout. Amen? Church, let's be that kind of a church so the world can see that our Savior is the Lord of glory. These who are here will continue to pray. Thank you. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you.